one of the most moving and oftentimes forgotten stories from the life of King David is the time when the Philistines were in, uh, had occupied and were in control of David's hometown, the city of Bethlehem. David and his men were out in the field you know, fighting you know, a long and protracted war. And, and one day, David is, is very thirsty. He's, he's kind of like offhandedly, he just says out, out loud, man, I'd give a fortune if I could just drink a drop of water from the well in, that's located in Bethlehem. You know, I'm so thirsty. You know, it's the best water. It's the water he grew up with. Well, three of his bravest soldiers are standing nearby, and they hear this offhanded statement, and they think to themselves, let's do it. Let's, you know, covert commando operation in the dead of the night, pass through the enemy lines, sneak in. That's what they do. They sneak into the city of Bethlehem. The very next morning, David wakes up, and, and the three of them are there. They're like, cheers. You know, a, a cup of ice-cold water right from the well of um, Bethlehem. And if you remember the story, uh, David's response is, is it's memorable. He looks at the, the cup of water. He, he looks at the men, and he says, guys, I am so grateful for this. And I can't drink this. I can't drink it. And the words he uses next are, are key for our passage today. He says these words, God forbid that I should drink the blood of these men. That's a very strange expression if you're a, a Jewish male. <laughs> I mean, the drinking the blood, I mean, that's vampire stuff, Right? Like nobody, I mean, the whole system of kosher butchering, Jewish dietary regulations, etc. I mean, the the number one rule is you cannot have the blood left in the animal when you go to consume it. Not a drop of it, not a single drop of the blood. You can't you can't drink it. You can't eat it. That is the the biggest you know no no in the whole world. And so David takes you know, that piece of knowledge and he combines it with this moment to create an exceptionally powerful metaphor when you think about it. But you, of course, have to think about it to see what the metaphor is pointing to. In essence, he says, I couldn't, I wouldn't. To drink that water would be profiting at the expense of these men's lives. And I won't. I won't do that. I mean, maybe it was a fairly politically expedient uh, statement to make at the time. But I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we read today in John chapter 6. And you'll notice Jesus completely reverses it because he says, you must drink my blood, which is a revolting and disgusting, um, scandalizing statement that his original listeners uh, recognize. You must drink my blood. You must eat my flesh. For, for you to have any of my life inside of you. <clears throat> Six one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside. He sat down with his disciples, 
the Jewish Passover feast was near. There's lots of Exodus motif in this passage. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, he said to Philip, because Philip was from a local town. He was a local Bethsaida. Philip, you know, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, I don't know if this is a cynical answer, but eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And then another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, and I think this is a beautiful expression of naivete. Oh, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed or gave it to those who were seated as distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Skip to verse 30. So later on, the people come back to Jesus And they ask, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? As if he hadn't already given a sign. Our forefathers ate the manna in the the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared the I am statement. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up uh, on the last day. Skip to verse 47. Where are we? I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever... 
this is an interesting, I'm not even going to touch on 56, but this would be fun if you're doing a Bible study, kind of this mutual indwelling idea. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, uh, I usually pick this, this hymns earlier in the week, like Tuesday, uh, sometimes even the week in advance. And I realized come Thursday this week that it, today would have been a perfect Sunday to sing Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, particularly the first verse. And then it was too late. And so we're going to pray the first verse of Guide Me, o, that, uh, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Let's bow our heads and pray that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much for this, your word. Open up to us this, the treasures that are found here. And guide us, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. We are weak, but thou art mighty. Hold us with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And in each of the the recordings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, it's only the men who are counted. We read that there are 5,000 men. But inevitably, there were women and children also out in the... uh, the grass that they sat down in. And, you know, if they had been counted, there probably were anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 people in total. Or, you know, there were as many as 40,000 hungry eyes staring back at Jesus. All Jesus has is five loaves of uh, barley bread, which I think it's kind of funny because barley bread is crummy bread. I mean, barley bread was the cheapest of all bread. In fact, uh, the Romans said that barley was food for beasts. And the only time that they would uh, feed their soldiers barley bread is like to discipline them. (laughs) So this is, yeah, don't imagine that these are five fluffy white loaves of of French or or sourdough. You know, five crummy, uh, think dollar pancake size, coarse, Wafers, I and mean, there's not going to be any leaven in this, this bread. And then there's two fish, two fish, two, fi- two sea bass, no, uh, two mostly, most likely sardine sized fish. What they would do back in that day is they would pickle their fish and make it extremely soft so that you could spread it like relish on the top of a piece of bread. But, oh, I don't eat fish, so that sounds delectable to me. You know, fish relish. What's amusing is when you read kind of late 19th century, early 20th century scholars, primarily European scholars, who are, you know, at that time, we're, we're enlightened by the scientific method, and we're, we're modern, and, and we know that you know, miracles such as these can't actually happen, um, but it's attested in all four Gospels. So 
So they think, well, something must have happened. Well, what happened? And, you know, it's amusing, their answer. They say the miracle that occurred here was Jesus' ability to get everybody to play along, to enter into his joke. He takes bread and he passes out the imaginary bread and the next person passes another slice of imaginary bread, et cetera, et cetera. One guy eats. He says, ah, this is the best food I've ever had before. And everybody's laughing and everybody's playing on. And that is their explanation for the feeding of the 5,000. Because we all know it's impossible to feed that many with that little, with that little. Or is it? Today, we think we have a pretty good idea of how the world works. Today, we think we pretty much know the line of demarcation between what is possible and what is impossible. But when you sit back and think about it, that line has changed a great deal in a thousand years, hasn't it? The line between the possible and impassable. I mean, do you think a a millennia from now? A millennia from now. A millennia from now. I, I mean, people are going to be altering reality in ways that we would say is utterly impossible. A millennia, would it really surprise you if a thousand years from now, somebody figures out how to change the molecular structure of water into wine? It wouldn't surprise me in a bit. A thousand years from now, somebody's going to figure out how to create buoyancy in an object, a human body, so that a, a body can float so much on the top of the water, you might even say it can walk across water. And I have absolutely no doubt that somebody is going to discover someday that by infusing energy into existing matter, new duplicate matter can be formed instantaneously. Now, you can quote a scientific law that tells me uh, that can't happen, but I think it will. Because that's That's what seems to be going on right here, doesn't it? Jesus takes bread into his hand. Uh, He gives thanks to his father. And then it's almost like that loaf just uh, replicates itself. It reduplicates. He, He takes fish in his hand. He creates fish that have never before swum, uh, swam in the ocean. He takes barley bread in his hand. He creates barley that has never before grown on the fields of this planet. Um, He's making it right there in his hands. I mean, yes, it's a miracle. And I'm not discounting that by saying we may discover it sometime in the future. But I just, I, this is not the main point of the sermon. But I really believe, the, how many gamers do we have in here? You know, in gaming, there are these things called Easter eggs. They're placed all inside a game that you discover. And, and I, I really believe that the creator has placed Easter eggs all throughout this world. That there, there's untapped potentials and potentialities that, that like, one day we are, we're going to find those out. And, and it maybe it's after the resurrection when the world is renewed and we are renewed and we're with Jesus and we're like Jesus and I don't know if he's going to have a seminar to teach us all of these things, but we're going to discover, like, we're going to discover that we really didn't know how things work and that things actually can work. Um, yeah, and the creator knows all of it. So I think it's fun to think about those kinds of things. You know, the Christmas Eve service, I was talking about you know, the utilization of our imagination, and, and that would be an example of, of how to think about the scriptures that way. 
what I really want to focus on today is the nature of symbolism and sign and metaphor in relationship to the Lord's Supper. Because I don't think that the Lord's Supper is, say, primarily in view in John chapter 6, because after all, the Lord's Supper hasn't been instituted by John chapter 6. But I do think, in fact, you look through church history, and everybody down throughout church history, everybody who's read this has at least heard echoes of the Lord's Supper in these words. And so the question for us is, uh, is, is how does it echo? <clears throat> Jesus uses this metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And on one level, I completely agree. It is metaphorical. Um, and I think it's wise for us to interpret that through the lens of David's words at the beginning of the sermon, that to eat or to drink the blood of someone means to profit at the expense of their life. And Jesus reverses this and says, like David says, I won't do that. And Jesus says, you must do that. You must profit at the expense of my life. And so he's clearly like metaphorically talking to us about his future cross. Much of the gospel of John is, you know, oriented towards that future cross. There's another metaphorical level to this. And Jesus interprets it for us in the passage itself. So do this with me. Do we, did I put 40 in here? Yeah, I did. We're going to read verse 40, and then we're going to read verse 54. And we're going to set these two in parallel and see how Jesus is explaining the metaphor for us. Verse 40, Jesus says, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, skip to verse 54. And Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It, it does seem that Jesus is interpreting the metaphor for us. Like, looking to the Son and believing in the Son is set in parallel to eating the Son's flesh and drinking the Son's blood. It's, complex. it's a complex metaphor describing true and saving faith. You know, faith in the Son if you have faith in the Son, you will live, which is, you know, again, a theme that gets repeated here. And it makes sense because all throughout John's gospel, the constant statement of John is, just believe in the Son, please. <laughs> please believe in the Son. The, the one work of God that God expects of all of humanity is just believe in my only begotten Son and you will have eternal life. So there, I, there is how he's speaking metaphorically. But I think he's also speaking sacramentally. And the question is how? Because when you give a sacramental interpretation of the passage, it, it gets a little thorny. I mean, are, do we actually eat Jesus' flesh in the supper? Like, are our teeth tearing the flesh of Jesus in the supper? Quite a number of Christians down through church history say, yes, yeah, this is exactly what has happened. I mean, by virtue of the, you know, the technical language, transubstantiation of the elements, that becomes flesh, and that becomes blood, and you know, and they would say, they would say, it's, I don't know, they would say that we don't even celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday. Like, if you don't have a properly constituted priest who truly believes that that becomes the flesh of Jesus, then what we're doing is we're eating some bread and drinking some wine and kind of kidding ourselves if we think that we're actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's how 
a great number of Christians in the world today um, understand it. He also equates this eating of the flesh and drinking the blood with eternal life. Is that telling us that we have to have the Lord's Supper in order to be saved? I'm just asking those questions because when you give a sacramental interpretation passage, it, it becomes a little challenging. But here's how, here's how I think we should consider it. And it was a, an illustration that I heard from a pastor, Steve Nicoletti, uh, a young, really talented, smart pastor up in Tacoma who took over you know, Rob Rayburn's church. You, you heard me um, talk about Rob a lot of times. He said, and he got it from one of his professors, but he said, it's like comparing the difference between the words, I love you and a hug. I love you. When a father says to his child, I love you, like those words, they, they're actually symbolic, aren't they? Like all of human language, all of our words and utterances are, are actually symbolic. They're, they're symbols, right? If I go, er, 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 that doesn't point to anything. But if I change those tones to I love you, then it's pointing to this thing that is inside of me that I feel towards you, this affection, this internal reality. It's all of human language, if you've never considered it, all of human language is is, uh, is symbolic. It points. And, and metaphors you know, point in much more complex ways than just regular language. But that's different than a hug, isn't it? Because in a hug, you know, a dad embraces his child. That's doing more than just pointing, right? It's actually generating and communicating the affection that is generated them, it's like it's passing it along. And a child, when a child is being hugged, they're not like, oh, okay, my dad is, he's putting his arms around me and gently squeezing me and that points to the fact that he has this internal affection for me. Like, that's not how, you don't even do the mental calculus in a hug. It's just like, it instantaneously is passed on to you. It makes, here's the language, it makes present the very thing that it means to convey. And so I think, you know, what's remarkable at the Lord's Supper, in one sense, the Lord's Supper is just a series of pointings. That bread points to the body. That wine points to the blood. Our eating points to the fact that our souls truly need to feed on Christ and that Jesus is truly, truly food for our souls. But in the Lord's Supper, it's not just pointing. It's not only pointing. In some mysterious way, the Lord's Supper is like a hug. It makes what it symbolizes truly present. So listen to this from Heidelberg Catechism, question number 75. I think it's kind of getting at both elements, the sign and the the presence. It reads this. And the, the whole point of this catechism question, by the way, is to encourage a Christian, just like to encourage you in your faith and give you assurance of salvation. He says, it reads this. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Okay, first part. That's the pointing, right? I see it, it points, I believe it. Second part, and as surely as I taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of his body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and his shed blood. There it is. That's the embrace. 
not saying the Lord's Supper, I don't mean it sentimentally as though the Lord's Supper is God hugging us, but it's the whole idea of it being mysteriously present. That last line is enormous. Like Jesus in this ritual meal is truly nourishing and refreshing my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body body and his shed blood. Like by Jesus' Holy Spirit, that thing is truly present. And I taste it and I know it. And now what we are not saying is that it's present by turning the bread into flesh. Just like even in the words, I love you, those words are not the Father's love in itself. They point to the Father's love. And just as in a hug, a hug is not the Father's love itself. It's like a transference of love. And so we would say that those things don't become the things that they symbolized. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, mysteriously, those things actually end up communicating to us the very things that they symbolize. When our eating, let me summarize it this way. When our eating and drinking is combined by faith, the Holy Spirit makes it so that you really and truly receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. (laughs) Now, a lot of us, we didn't grow up with that (laughs) at all, did we? A lot of us, we grew up celebrating the Lord's Supper maybe once a month, if we grew up as Christians, maybe once a month, maybe once a quarter, and we thought of the Lord's Supper entirely in terms of signs. You know, I'm supposed to do this in remembrance of Jesus. Oh, I, I, I remember Good Friday. Oh, I make the mental connections, and, and I, I, yeah, I, I do that. And, and, you, and for some of you here, you've never heard what I just said. You've never heard that before. You've never heard that Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you are truly present to you when you eat and drink by faith. It is such a mouthful. It is such a titanic idea. Like, I hope that it makes you just, you're like, I need to think about this some more. I really need to dwell upon this because it's like, whoa, this is enormous. It, it, it is enormous. And I don't mean this as a criticism at all of other Christians. As a pastor, I listen to how people talk about their faith. I, I want to hear in their words how they process like who God is, who Jesus is, what my faith is, etc. And when I listen to other Christians, particularly Christians of our stripes, evangelical Christians, I mean, Christians, great Christians, Christians who go to Calvary Chapel, Christians who go to the Vineyard, Christians who go to, I grew up in Phoenix. All the big churches are community churches or Bible churches. Um, I was one of these Christians. When they process their faith, when they talk about Jesus, it's almost entirely Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus. He's that spirit being that's kind of up there whom I have a personal relationship with. It's great. We talk to each other. Sometimes when I do imaginative prayer, I imagine him like sitting in the chair in my room and I'm talking to him. Sometimes I go for prayer walks and he walks with me. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that, that spirit being. And that's how they talk about their faith, which is a perfectly fine way to talk about your faith. But they never, ever talk about Jesus as though Jesus, he's the one I feed on every week. He's the one I, like central to my faith is the fact that I, I feed on Jesus every week. They don't talk that way. He's like up there. Um, and 
yeah, it's just something that's entirely divorced from their spirituality. It was divorced from my spirituality. I never even conceived of talking or thinking of Jesus in, in this way until I probably went to seminary. But I, I think God wants, I, I think God wants this to be part of it. Not all of it, but part of it. Secondly, a second response that I can imagine to the statement I, I made is, you know, some of you, this is not your first day in All Saints. You've been here 17 years. You've, you've probably heard me say some version or another of what I just said before. You've heard it, and you, you agree. You nod your head. You say, that is wonderful. That is, that's, that is wonderful. And I don't really believe that. I don't believe that. Honestly, when the bread is passed on Sunday morning, I am more concerned about the germs that have been deposited on that bread by everybody else's hands. Like, at the very least, there is a total disconnect between what you just said, Pastor Cheney, and my subjective experience of the Lord's Supper. Because, like, look, I, I don't feel it week after week. I don't feel it. I don't... Um, I don't feel like something spectacular is going on. I don't feel like the, the life of Jesus is flowing into me. Have I described any of you in that? Well, what should you do? Um, maybe if you've even, if, if I described you, if you even asked those questions, I just want to commend you the fact that you're consciously asking those questions, that you're really kind of present and present and active enough during the Lord's Supper that you can even recognize, oh, there is a disconnect between my theology and my present experience. And rather than giving you an answer of like how to fix that, oh, well, you, you ought to be thinking about this, you ought to be doing about this, I want to put it back to you as a challenge. Why don't, why don't you wrestle with God for that, with that? Why don't you ask him about that disconnect and kind of like see what he does with you and, and that whole process? And if at the end of that, you still don't have a clue, come and talk with me and we'll talk then. But I think there's some real value in taking existentially difficult parts about our faith and wrestling with God over them rather than, you know, pastor give you the perfect answer, which of course we know he doesn't do. (laughs) Another response to that statement, for some of you, you know, you really struggle with the assurance of your salvation, and I really, unfortunately, I can't relate to that. Like, I grew up, I had a great childhood. I knew my dad loved me. I knew I didn't have to earn my dad's love. I felt very secure in my father's love. I was taught a form of Christianity that was, of course it's grace. Of course I don't earn this. Of course I don't earn my way into the father's favor. Um, but, you know, that wasn't your family of origin. You did. You you didn't have those kinds of things. And so today you really wrestle, like, am I saved? Does God really love me? And what I, would, what I would point to you is that, look, every Sunday, if you're eating and drinking by faith, just look objectively of what God is, he's, all, he's telling you in this. Like, he's objectively giving to you the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Like, what do you think God's trying to say to you there? He's like, it's good. It's good. I love you. I'm feeding you. You're at the Father's table. Just believe that. Believe that. Because it is, a, it is an objective truth that he's communicating to you. Finally, uh, those of you who um, 
You ask the question week after week, should I take the Lord's Supper? On one level, the answer is yes. You must take the Lord's Supper because without the bread of heaven, you will die. You will die. That's what he says. Without this bread, you will die in the wilderness. So on one level, yes, you must have it. On another level, I mean, this is a special table that he has instituted. It's only for those who have been baptized and profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We could talk in greater detail about why that has always been the order. Baptism precedes the Lord's Supper, both in theology and church history. I mean, the only way that that's gotten reversed is like it's been in the last... 50 years or so. And it's not been because of good theology. No, baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. Entrance into the family precedes sitting down with the family. Um, and so you, yeah, you have, to, you have to believe. It's a hard thing for me to say to you if you've never been baptized and never professed faith. And I will, I'll ask you this question. What do you think God is saying every day, every Sunday, when that bread and that cup, the bread of life, it's passed to you and you pass it along and it just goes right by you. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. All the metaphor, all the symbolism, all of it. What do you, what do you think God is saying to you as the, as the bread and the cup go by? <clears throat> well, I've only scratched the surface of this passage. There's just so, so much here. I think Jesus' words have so many other implications for Christianity. Uh, If we believe what he says here, it probably might affect the way we do church attendance. Americans, what they're in church once every month, once once a month, twice a month. It might it might change how how we even thought about going to church. It would change how we even looked for a church when we're trying to decide between churches. So many implications. Let me conclude with this, though. And I didn't include it in your bulletin, so I'll read it from my Bible. Here's what happened next. Verse 60. On hearing, when Jesus told his disciples that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood to inherit eternal life, we read, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And many of them turned away. So this ends up being a pivot point in the gospel of John. Jesus is, after the feeding of 5,000, his popularity is reached its zenith. And now from here on, it just starts to plummet. And everyone turns away. Verse 67, Jesus then turns to the 12. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Do you want to go away? And characteristically, who do you think is the apostle who speaks up for the group? Simon Peter, he speaks up for the group and his response, he he doesn't say, oh yeah, Jesus, we know you were just only talking figuratively and in metaphors. We don't, we, we get it. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter didn't understand. I mean, he, he didn't understand all of this. None of them like, fully understood what was going on. Uh, they didn't understand that unlike David, they must profit from his death. Unlike David, they must drink his blood. They didn't get any of that. 
but they were willing to believe and wait for understanding to later come to them, as it does at the beginning of the go- at the end of the gospel. And that's a great lesson for us all. Oftentimes, um, you know, trust and belief it precedes understanding. It certainly does. Amen.